This episode is dedicated to Jack Goodall. He donated to our crowdfund campaign because he believed it was a way to restore storytelling to the progressive cause. We're over halfway to our £1,000 goal. If you have a spare fiver and want to help us get to a grand, then click the link to our Crowdpack page in the show notes. If you want to support Open Country without spending money, leave us a rating and review on iTunes. That is actually a big help. John Bu is one of my favourite historians. As I say in the interview, his book Realpolitik, a very niche history of foreign policy ideas, was what initially nudged me into supporting Remain. We talk about Realpolitik, as well as his considerably more celebrated biography of Clement Attlee. The book first came out in 2016, and since then, Attlee has been taken up by everyone from Theresa May to Jeremy Corbyn and Andrew Adonis. John and I talk about why. I really enjoyed this conversation, as John doesn't pull his punches, especially those aimed at Corbyn. So when I interviewed Sir Lawrence Freeman, my deferential frame of mind made me call him Sir Lawrence. Do I call you John, Professor Bew? Uh, you can call me John. Okay. You can call me John, yeah. That's... Uh, I was really hoping Sir Lawrence would say yes, call me sir. Um, start off with the lightning round. What is your favourite word? Can I have two words? Go on. Combined. Manchester United. Okay. Uh, favourite book? I read one recently that I liked a lot. I'm struggling to remember the name of it. It was very, very good, but I've forgotten it. Favourite recent book? That's too, too existential a question. <laughs> um, Favourite recent book? I read a, a really good, impressive biography of Richard Nixon by John Farrell. Uh, and I didn't expect to be as impressed by it. And as a biographer, I thought that the art of biography in it was really, really excellent. The thesis wasn't actually that original. Just was a really good, serious piece of passionate, intensive mm. research and judicious assessment and balanced um, evaluation of Richard Nixon, which is an easy thing to do. Yeah. So that's the one that jumps into my mind. And I just remember the book I really liked. I read it a few years ago. I, really, I actually really like post-apocalyptic novels. Um, it's called uh, Station Eleven, um, which is a very good kind of Canadian um, post-apocalyptic novel by someone called Emily St. St. John. So neither of them are my favourite book, but they're both, like, <laughs> both uh, recent books. Favourite film? Um, because I like the post-apocalyptic stuff. My standard answer to that is 28 Days Later. Oh, love okay. that, love that. Also love Carlito's Way, which is an excellent one. I really recommend if you haven't seen it. I haven't seen that one yet. Uh, which fictional character do you most identify with? Could say Flashman, but it's not Flashman. Um... <laughs> Which fictional character? Flashman Royal Rovers. Um, <laughs> that's a real tough one. Fictional character. It could be a, a movie character. Chillian yeah. uh, Murphy, 28 Days Later. Um, no, 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 no. No one Irish. Um, that's a real good question. Fictional character. Super Ted. There you go. <laughs> uh, who is your real life role model? Because I was going to say my dad, it's too cheesy. No, so it was. Um, so at least two guests have chosen their granddads. So um, I don't think my granddads <laughs> are quite wild. Um, Eric Cantona. Really going with this Manchester United thing. Yeah. yeah. After 2016, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Uh, cautiously optimistic. 
Uh, of all the people you know, whose mind would you most like to change? That's a really good question. I like that. Um, can I get people from history or people I know? Oh, it has to be people you know. People I know. Uh, my wife. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, change. You know what? I try to try and... I don't know what is contemporary. I try to try and change Barack Obama's mind because I think... Not because I didn't, I'm not saying he necessarily got anything wrong in particular. Uh, it's not a judgment of, of what he thinks. It's the fact that he seems so sure mm. of his own viewpoint. I quite like the challenge of changing his mind on something. Okay. What did he change his mind on anything during the whole time in office? When did you last change your mind? Um, I change it all the time. Um, about most things. Um, but I guess in, in political terms, um, I haven't changed my mind on Brexit. I haven't changed my mind on on Trump. I've changed my mood a little bit. Um, I've, I've changed my mood quite a lot on Brexit, um, but I haven't changed my mind on it. Okay. If you weren't doing what you do now, how else would you try to make the world a better place? If I wasn't doing it now, I would want to be a footballer, but um, <laughs> I'm not good enough. Too slow, injury-prone, lanky, and not talented enough. So what I do to make the world a better place... Um, See, the question is, you can do lots of things that are good, and then there are things you can do that deploy your skills. Um, what would I do? I guess, you know, this might sound naive, but I, I would I would maybe go, try and go in the foreign office and do okay. something through that. So I read your book, Real Politique, uh, just as... And the... you're still here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, you know, I have an IR master's, I'm into all that. Okay. Um, yeah, so I read it just as the referendum campaign was beginning. Uh, and it was sort of what initially nudged me into supporting Remain. Because to me, it seemed that our EU membership was sort of part of a long Anglo-American di- tradition of sort of creating rules and institutions and binding other countries into it. And the rules benefit those countries, but they especially benefit us. And for sort of all their like Euroscepticism and church of worship, I thought the levers were closer to sort of continental realism and the appeasers. In the book, you quote Neville Chamberlain sort of lamenting that uh, collective security was stopping Britain from cutting deals with, quote, you know, uh, decisive countries like Italy uh, and sort of fully pursuing our interests. And that, for me, kind of echoes with what... Not acquitted, but not approvingly. Uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Well, for me, that quote sort of, it sort of echoes with what Farage and Johnson were saying uh, with regard to the EU and Putin and Trump. Now, when I interviewed Sir Lawrence uh, a few weeks ago, he warned me against lumping together sort of the levers with all the bad guys from history. And he sort of pointed out that there hasn't actually been much follow through on that sort of unilateralist rhetoric since 2016. How do you see Brexit Britain and the Leave vote in terms of foreign policy? Okay, um, so foreign policy may be the lens with which I approached it. Foreign policy in the broadest terms. I mean, I'm talking about Britain standing in the world and alliances and friendships and, you know, threats are in there as well, but not, not so much, you know, 
worries about security because I think you know Britain's contribution to NATO, Britain's contribution to European security, broadly speaking, will continue. I guess I'm li- nice to he- I'm nice to hear that someone a has read the book, um, b and even more terrifyingly um, um, influenced anyone. Um, <laughs> so I mean, yeah, some of the things you talk about are you know I guess my fed into to my own calculation. I was never conflicted about being a remainer. However, I don't feel sort of culturally aghast or horrified. I mean, I still think it's going to make Britain poorer and potentially a little bit weaker. I don't think that is a is a terminal condition necessarily. It could turn into one if we, if we mishandle it. So I kind of yeah, I think there was a there was a higher realism, um, if not necessarily a higher purpose, in the European project and my slight concern about leave even though as many people on the leave campaign or who voted leave that i admired my family different walks of life and different from different economic socioeconomic um levels um some of them were were leavers as well i guess my concern about the leave campaign was twofold from a real politic perspective the first is that the case for it was too radical and I'm suspicious of radicalism in politics, sort of hyper-radicalism. And the second concern was that it was had too many conflicting visions within Leave itself from, you know, a desire to promote and protect a kind of a new industrial strategy in the UK, which I would say bravo with as a kind of old-fashioned social democrat uh, to kind of free marketeer Singapore model. Um, So there's those those two concerns but, you know, from the foreign policy perspective and a domestic perspective, the concern was radical rupture Mm. from a status quo that was imperfect, highly problematic, um, hadn't fully been interrogated or stress-tested by a rather complacent, self-important cosmopolitan elite, I don't say liberally, but I don't think it's just entirely a liberal elite. Um, it wasn't working for many people. And it was really a vote about the social contract. So but you know, I haven't changed my mind on any of that. So foreign policy, domestic perspective, both of them I think my realpolitik mind said, you know, better in than out. Your biography of Clement Attlee sort of came out at quite a contentious time in British politics. Sort of you have Brexit, you have Corbyn, you have May, sort of everything like that. And everyone from Theresa May to Jeremy Corbyn have tried to sort of claim the mantle of Attlee. And recently, uh, Lord Adonis has sort of made a play for it. Yeah, too. I saw that. Yeah. Gifts that keeps getting here. <laughs> yeah. uh, what do you think is the Attlee style of leadership? And what qualities are all these politicians taking from him or projecting onto him? Yeah, I think they're projecting onto him. I mean, of course, you can't exhume the man and sort of, you know, roll him out again. I get, you know, this is, um, if he's around today, it might be regarded as pretty inadequate, a hopeless Labour backbencher, you know, with idiosyncratic views and the inability to appear on camera. Um, clearly, there's a kind of an odd return to fashion in Attlee, and I don't give myself any credit. There's a bit of luck in sort of running about Attlee at that time. Certainly wasn't fashionable. When I started writing the book, um, and then it's 2013, Ed Miliband starts talking about Attlee um, mm. in a rather desperate fashion as the man who inspired him in lots of ways, but actually kind of didn't really go into details about what that was. Theresa May used Attlee, and she, oddly, when she was writing very high, and a kind of Nick Timothy view of um, a kind of more a more um, society-oriented mm. um, citizens of somewhere type conservatism. And then, of course, the Corbyn connection. Now, Corbyn's never mentioned Attlee himself. John McDonald's never mentioned Attlee himself. They prefer 
other people who I can talk about in a moment if you like. So it's an odd thing to kind of bring Atley up, but Corbyn supporters were wearing these What Would Clement Do t-shirts as well. So what do they say in him? I think the, there's an appeal in Atley that each of these politicians are trying to tap into, which is kind of an unaffected, slightly more authentic version of politics as public service, less slickly marketed um, perhaps also less swashbuckling and Elizabethan and Churchillianism. Mm. Um, you also have Boris using Churchill as a kind of model. So I think that that was the sort of what they're trying to tap, tap into. Also, Atlee's great achievement that it's very hard to replicate in British politics is to talk about ethics and moral purpose in politics without making everyone vomit, kind of creating kind of general nausea. Um, Atlee had that. I'm not sure any of these people uh, trying to replicate them do have that. It's kind of hankering for a kind of clearer, straight up, simpler, uh, normal message. My own view is the, you know, the Atlee creed, credo is kind of, it's where the British people are at. Pretty patriotic, not ashamed of the country, unlike the Labour front bench. Mm. Um, they don't think everything did in, did in the past was wrong, uh, but they're, they're basically believe in redistribution and social democracy across the piece. That's where the British people are at. Now, neither party can seem to get near that. Why do you think that they can't? Sort of what? What's stopping either the either the Tory Party, who need the votes, or the Labour front bench, who maybe ideologically might not be entirely there, but since twenty seventeen, their sort of appetite's been whetted a bit in terms of actually grabbing power. So I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the, because British politics is is complicated and you know i said the british people are there i said i suspect there's a majority for that kind of vision um the difficulty of course is the main two parties are coalitions as well and you know while labor's arrived at a social dem you know a firm social democracy which has proved very popular jeremy corbyn's perceived lack of patriotism and the kind of historical legacy issues of his support for terrorist organizations or i'd say alleged support for terrorist yeah. organisations. Um, uh, I don't want to get sued. Well, you know, I grew up in Belfast, so <laughs> sue me. Um, um, but I'll say alleged. Um, so, you know, that 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 sort of, that, 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 that did cost him. Um, and also competence issues as well. Whereas at the same time, the Conservative Party was not a natural vessel for a, social, a semi-social democratic mm. pro- uh, sort of product. And, and, and they suffered the kind of metropolitan backlash because of Brexit. Mm. They went hard down on Brexit, but they didn't win it. Theresa May won a million more pop- of the popular vote than David Cameron did. They actually did crack into some of these working class areas. I suspect they had quite a megalomaniacal idea that they were going to take out Labour with a massive landslide in key Labour constituencies and overplayed their hand by playing a certain message there. They've hit them in the metropole. So it's always a balance. So I think these parties are imperfect um, vehicles for the for these ideas. See, I actually thought there was there was actually a parallel between May's campaign and the Clinton campaign in that they instead of doing what was needed to to just win, they tried to win big. And so whereas you would have Hillary Clinton going to sort of states like Arizona or Georgia in the hope of like flipping them over. And you had Theresa May going to these constituencies with like 20 point Labour leads. They sort of missed the just doing enough to win rather than a transformational you know, change. And I think that's right tactically. I think that's right in tactical terms. I, I think I, I do think basically, though, in essence, Theresa May paid more attention to Rust Belt Britain than Hillary Clinton played the Rust Belt America. Mm. 
Um, and I think that that is that is a fundamental difference as well. I think the Metropolitan backlash you didn't expect it to be as severe. Mm-hmm. Seeing the most collapse of London, people with one million pound houses, you know, voting for Jeremy Corbyn in droves, essentially kind of middle class revolution. Yeah. Um, so you know, I don't think she expected the extent of the backlash. So they, you know, they hedged and they they went down in that. Way. But there's an interesting tactical similarity, yeah. I've really empathised with Atlee's sort of young Atlee's journey from like a sort of unthinking privileged Tory to someone who sort of questioned whether the status quo was actually helping people. Before 2016, uh, I was actually a pretty conventional conservative. And then Brexit and Trump kind of radicalised me. And since then, I've moved fairly leftwards, relatively speaking. But it sort of seems to me that right now our political climate, it sort of rewards ideological consistency and sort of dismisses those who change their minds. When I read that Attlee, you know, young Attlee said of striking cab drivers that uh, they would have to beg for their furs. And when I read that, I thought if he were sort of alive today and he'd written that on some sort of blog he kept as a student, would that have been used to sort of discredit sort of very, very genuine work he'd be doing as, say, a Labour mayor of London um, to actually help disadvantaged communities? How do you think Atlee would fare in sort of today's climate, which you've kind of touched on? Well, there's not too many smoking guns or skeletons in his closet. That's an obvious one. And he had that sort of imperial background. Um, but you could also say that, you know, the the class basis of, of a key core of Jeremy Corbyn's advice, of course, Jeremy Corbyn went to an independent school yeah. himself. And he's surrounded by people who either went to public schools or sent their children to public schools yeah. at great, you know, um, you know the, the, the sort of core hypocrisy in the Labour Party doesn't seem to have cost them that much anyway. Um, so, you know, but I will say, you know, sort of riding down things and ability, ability to survive these political storms of what someone said 10, 15 years ago. I mean, that's incredible. You can talk about, you know, just to Ch- Churchill rather than Attlee. Yeah. Churchill's survival after, you know, going off the reservation about five times on India. You know, being completely discredited by his own party, too right wing for the 1930s Conservative Party on Indian Empire. You know, the catastrophe of Gallipoli, which makes the Iraq War look like a uh, walk in the park and yet retains a reputation as a strategist. Mm. You know, political careers nowadays last about 10 years, right? They're like the same as footballers' careers. Yeah. It, the, the, the previous generations, and partly because they lived through two world wars or, you know, rise and fall of empire, mm. um, you know, I guess had a bit more of a stomach for this. Actually, you know, I suspect the British people have sufficient stomach for some, you know, for, for, for people saying what they think. I think when it comes to, you know, sexual harassment, when it comes to racism, I think their tolerance level is pretty low and I think that's a really good thing. Um, however, when it comes to sort of saying what you think or being politically controversial, I think they could they could take a lot more. I think that's what ex- partly explains the success of Corbyn. So he's seen as authentic. I actually don't think he's authentic. I think he's mealy mouth liar when it comes to a lot of a lot of the, the background. But Jacob Rees Mogg's another example now. Right, it's actually people are Farage to certainly sense of political success of yeah, you know, at least he said at least he means what he says. And and I think we've got a little bit too squeamish about words. While we should retain very high standards about behaviour and, you know, sexual harassment in particular, words and political opinions within the parameters of British politics, you know, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be hanging people out to dry for certain things they said, even if we just because we just disagree with them. Well my point was more not so much that they say sort of controversial things. It's sort of the characters like Corbyn, uh, Farage, Rees Mogg, they're rewarded for their sort of consistency 
that you know they're, 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 they're always left wing they're always right wing and actually there's no rewards for someone saying actually I did used to think this but I've now changed my mind because of X, Y and Z and this is why I've changed my mind and that's why you should judge me on that so there's very much a premium for everyone to always be you know never wrong rather than trying to be right yeah, I think that's fair. that's a fair point. I don't know if it's, it's fundamentally different. It's very easy to get carried away with the idea that our time is different. But I think there's a bit of a trend now for purity, partly because of the Brexit debate, partly because of the breakdown of parliamentary democracy and the balance in the, in, in, in the Commons is adding a kind of purity to every, you know, cabinet reshuffle. Yeah. It, it, the question is where you stand on Brexit. Um, and then, you know, the true believers have taken control of the Labour Party. Um, you know, so there are structural political reasons mm. for this. The Conservative bench is because of Brexit and the nature of what that requires of backbenchers, what that requires of the government, the balance of power in the cabinet, and the Labour Party because a highly ideological faction is taking control of the Labour Party really quick. It hasn't even t- got time to forget its ideology, let alone actually work out if it works or not. Mm. Um, so, you know, a series of contingencies have kind of created that atmosphere that focuses on purity. I think these things come in sort of swings and roundabouts. You know, if you, if you lose three elections on your purity, sometimes your purity, you know, <laughs> shit, you, yeah. Yeah. and the Conservatives tend to get rid of their purity quicker, mm. uh, apart from Europe. But whereas Labour Party, you know, takes a little bit of time to shake itself out of a purist position. I mean, I always find that the the greatest sin for the Tories is arrogance. They go through a cycle of sort of losing power and then they rediscover their sort of caution and then they win and then they gradually lose that caution, become quite arrogant, then hubristic, then they lose again and then they go through the same. I think there's a bit of hubrism, but there's also a bit of blind panic as well. And you know, there's also a competence issue. You have these short political cycles and Labour government found it after 10 years. And maybe everyone would talk about the next big beast coming into the cabinet. And there was basically, a, a, you know, they got rid of too many of the slightly more idiosyncratic or eccentric potential ministers, the kind of Frank Fields, Kit Hoeys, who were, you know, took up early positions because of years of faithful label service. They were gone. Yeah. Pretty sort of to the next kind of apparatchik generation, the departmental caucuses, the Brownites, the Blairites, they all, they all came in. And then they started falling, by the way, so I was like, well, where's the talent? Um, mm. There's a talent problem. You know, and the Conservative Party going through that cycle now. You know, whatever you think about George Osborne, he's talented. You know, Cameron is a talented politician. Chop, chop, chop. All the people that, are, you know, on their side or in their caucus that have gone as well. So, you know, I think Conservative Party major, major issue now is that the thing for which they're normally known in government competence is starting to erode. So there are all the questions I prepared. So... Apparently, you want to ask me a question. So, if you got a question, <laughs> uh, no, you just you said to me before we discussed about you're sort of coming at this from a progressive angle, like what how progressives can kind of um, uh, message or you know do better to kind of get the message across. I was just trying to think if I was a progressive or not. So, <laughs> what what what's, what's a progressive? Uh, have you heard of a guy called Jason Kander? Yeah. So he came up with a definition of a progressive, which is someone who is interested in solving problems. Yeah, interesting in solving policy problems. So that was his definition of... It's pretty banal. Yeah, it's pretty banal. Uh, I, and I thought it was incomplete uh, yeah. as well. So I sort of expanded it to... It's someone who's interested in solving a policy problem that makes people's lives materially better. And most conservatives say that about themselves. You can say it's a technocrat. Well, see, I, I felt that the, the problem with Brexit and Trump was that 
they weren't so much attempts to solve problems. They were actually scapegoating problems, which is why I felt such a distance from them. And I think, uh, I think a problem with the term progressive as used by others is that it's became for me a bit too party political. So this is sort of my attempt to try and take so progressive from the progressives. Well, sort of take it out of party politics and try and come up with a working definition that various people you need to go and work for a load of donors. <laughs> um, that's the way forward. Or the Institute of Government. Um, yeah, I think those are, those are valuable, important things. I think there has been a deterioration in tone and in the quality of political debate. And it's been a bit shrill. Actually, I don't think that the election of Trump and Brexit, while there are obviously commonalities and similarities between the two processes, and there are huge problems with the Brexit debate, actually, I think the level of political engagement and discussion, mm. and you can see that just in terms of the amount of people who turned out in the US presidential election versus turned out to vote in Brexit. Um, huge different differentials. Um, mm. Actually, I don't think it's massively problematic here and I actually think British politicians are kind of people are tired of them speaking in memes mm. and speaking in kind of tick box polling obsessed type of ways about things again Miliband was the worst offender in that and and, um, and actually kind of the yearning for authenticity doesn't actually mean a yearning for dumbing down so I think if the next politician who treats the British public seriously and wants to make a case or an argument with them or on something I think like, you know, does very well um, but we're, our politicians are understandably it seems slightly scared of making those sort of bigger cases. If you enjoyed this episode, I really recommend going back and listening to my interviews with Andrew Adonis and Sir Lawrence Freeman. Know what else is recommended? Rating and reviewing this show. Go do it now.